Let's look in Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, whatever, Zethar, and Carcass. Mercy. The seven eunuchs, it's getting worse, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. That is a lot of words, and it is a little bit of a kind of a monotonous sounding passage of scripture. It's the opening verses to a remarkable book in our Old Testament. And in spite of all the goofy names and uh, the descriptions of furniture and things like that, I want to tell you something. There is, there is something important for us to learn tonight. I've actually called this message Full Egos with Empty Souls. And it describes not only the king and all of the men in this passage. Guys, we got to buckle up tonight, man. This is not going to be encouraging when it comes to spotlighting the male species. But these guys have egos that are just full and bursting, but they have absolutely empty souls. And so where are we? We're in the fifth century before Jesus Christ, around the year 483 BC. And we are traveling back to the Persian Empire, and it is some 50 years after God's people had been released to go back to Israel. If you remember with me, God brought judgment upon Israel for their entering into pagan worship, sacrificing their children, all of the things we talked about in the study on the life of Josiah. God brought judgment. They were carried away captive. They spent 70 years there. And this is about 50 years after the initial moving back into the land. But Esther, who's going to be the main character in the story, and her cousin Mordecai, they stayed in Persia. So they are Israelites. They are Hebrews living in a very hostile pagan ungodly culture but it's also the center of power at that time the persian empire was over the whole land and so that is the context that we're looking at in here this is not taking place in the land of israel this is not primarily a um uh, an environment 
of monotheistic worship of Yahweh. This is uh, a remnant of believers living in a far and distant land that is dominated by a man who's got a massive ego and an empty soul. So let's talk about the king, let's talk about the queen, then let's talk about the culture, and then I'm going to give you one part of the culture which I believe is going to be a constant thread in this series that we need to talk about because I believe it is still the activity of Satan to suppress, oppress, and destroy women who bear the image of God. And so we're going to talk about all of that tonight, so we better get started. So first of all, let's look at the king of Persia. He's not that complicated. This guy is a first-rate loser when it comes to the things of God. First of all, there's nothing wrong with power, but this is a guy who lived for power. Look up in verses 1 and 2 and just let the scriptures describe it. Um, by the way, I'm going to call him Xerxes in this series because it's easier to pronounce than Ahasuerus. And so Xerxes is actually the Greek name given to the same man. So when it talks about Ahasuerus, it's talking about Xerxes the first. And in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days he sat on his royal throne in Susa the capital. So very quickly, the power of the king, militarily, politically, he dominated the land. He was literally the most powerful man living in the known world at that time. And Xerxes was not yet 40 years old. He's somewhere between 36, 37 years old, not quite 40 years old yet. And so here he is, and he is running the show. He's the son of a king, so he's known ease and opulence his whole life, but he's actually having an expanded territory that would run from modern-day Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the way moving to the west and slightly south, down into the northern part of Africa around Sudan. And so all of that territory is his, and it's described here as like 127 provinces. So I don't want to belabor this but you've got to recognize this guy is a powerhouse he is literally the most empowered empowered man in all of the known world at that time and this is where we open up the story of Esther God is going to sovereignly connect Esther a little unknown Jewish girl in Persia she is going as most of you know connect her to this incredibly powerful man but let's look at it a little bit further at the king the king of Persia notice also his prosperity the Bible says here that he gives this feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia is there, and the nobles and the governors of all of the 127 provinces were also there, and he showed his riches. Look at the ego here. Come to my place for six months and let me show you the riches of my royal glory and the splendor and pomp of my greatness for many days and then the author gives us the entire amount of days which is 180 days so i want you to get this with me so for six months the king calls a feast a celebration a party to honor himself he wants everybody to bask in his glory by the way this is very common for ancient pagan kings they were often revered as gods and so this is not unique to him but it's just another repetition of this theme that you see all throughout the old testament that when a man gets power and it's uncontested power and it's unrivaled power and it is undiluted power what ends up happening if the man doesn't walk with god is he, he views himself as a god and he expects everybody else to view him as a God. And so just as the Lord in heaven above rightfully demands worship and honor and glory from us, and that's no problem because he alone is worthy of it, these pagan kings would often do the same thing. And so think about it. A six-month party, a nonstop, constant party available, and the, and the king actually calls his most important military people to come in cycles back to his palace and celebrate with them, and he does this for 180 days, and everybody that comes is ridiculously impressed. They're not only impressed with what they see, but they're impressed by the glory of man. They are astounded, and they're amazed, and there's probably something beating in the heart on the chest of every single one of those men that comes and says, I wish I was him. I'd love to be like him. I'd love to have his riches. I'd love to have his palace. I'd love to have his power. Because, by the way, until a person comes to Jesus Christ, he's got to worship something. We're all worship factories. All of us are. We will worship something. And so these men are probably, because they worship themselves, they long to have the glory of Xerxes in their own lives, and that is primarily displayed in his power and his prosperity. 
But I, I think we can go a step further. Because this guy is not subtle, no shame whatsoever. Look down in verses 5 through 8, and let's just read his pomp. Let's let the scriptures speak here. So when these 180 days were drawing to a close, when they were completed, the king gave for all of the people that were present in Susa, both great and small, he gives them a feast that is lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And then it describes what the decorations look like. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, and they're fastened with cords of linen and purple, hooked on silver rods attached to marble pillars. And notice this, the furniture is made of gold and silver. And it's on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. Don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Okay, so that's all of the image. And then it gets to the beverages. This is a banquet. This is a drunken feast. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was, according to this edict, there is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. What does all that mean? Okay, so if after all of the important people celebrate for six months, all of the governors, all of the princes, all of the mighty men in the military, so you got six months of this nonstop banqueting and partying and feasting, and then on the last week of this nonstop party, the king, who is a consummate politician, he says, hey, we got to keep the constituency happy. Let's do this. The last seven days of the feast, let anybody, small or great in the land, anybody that's in the capital, you can come to the king's palace. You're not getting in. You can stay out in the courtyard, but you can drink as much as you want. You can eat as much as you want, and you can party with me, the king, at my house. That's a pretty slick politician. Kind of reminds you of some of the stuff we've seen over the years and even in American politics where they'll do anything to win the favor of the people. And so you've got all of this opulence out there. And ultimately, you get this decree by the king. It was normal in that society that any time that anybody saw the king raising his cup to his lips to drink, they would be compelled to do the same thing. And so it almost seems, I can't prove this, but it almost seems like the king is saying, Look, y'all ain't going to be able to keep up with me, so let me go ahead and put the law out there. You, there's no compulsion for you to keep up with me when I drink. You do as you please. And so it, he gives the law that tells them everybody's free to drink or to not drink. You can drink as much as you want or you can abstain. But he himself, as we're about to find out, was getting loaded all during that week. Now, listen, it sounds like, you know, college frat life. I mean, that's what it basically sounds like. But this was the man in power. And this is where... These two not yet named believers, these two Hebrews, Mordecai and Esther, they're living in this area. They're living in an atmosphere that is completely opposite of what they know to be the revelation of God the Father's heart. And so they're living in a culture as pilgrims and wayfarers. They, they're passing through. They don't belong there. And yet everywhere, everywhere they're, they're looking, the atmosphere is that of pagan idolatry, sensuality, and worship. It is a, it is a culture of debauchery and indulgence. Now, why am I going out of my way to say that? Because I, I want to remind all of us of something. We, we've now, because most of us in here are adults, we have all lived so long in the American culture that we no longer know how to blush. We're, we're not shocked by anything anymore. The things that we have become numb to would have been scandalous in our parents' or grandparents' generation. But because, especially, I'm, I'm 48, and those that are my age, around my age, and younger, you have always grown up in a land that has been primarily inundated with hypersexuality, the demand to be free from all constraints. Some of you that are, are baby boomers or a little bit older, you, you, you can remember a culture that wasn't quite like the one we're living in now. But my age and younger, it's always been this way. And one of the concerns that I've gotten is we've actually acclimated to the culture. We've actually dropped our expectation of what is reasonable and righteous. And we are now, if we're not careful, we are now kind of benumbed to all that is going on in our culture. So every now and then, I'm just going to make sure we remember that there's still biblical morality that God expects from us. 
There is still a high call on our lives to walk according to the Spirit and not indulge the lust of the flesh. And there are still moral norms that we find in Scripture that God is not okay with us violating. You know, I feel really compelled to say this because as our church gets younger and as we, 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 we uh, advance in years further and further away as a culture from biblical righteousness, it's just good to remind everybody that God's only lawful expression of our sexuality, our sexual desires, is within the bonds of heterosexual marriage. Yeah, that is never going to get the amens that it deserves, but it's still true. Because, and listen, everybody wants to harp on homosexuality. And, man, people pound their pulpits on homosexuality. But they give a free pass to Christians sitting in the congregation that are heterosexually hooking up with people that are not their spouses. So we need to be equal opportunity offenders, amen. We need to make sure that every now and then we just remind all of us that we're going to give an account for how we lived our lives. And God's standard has not changed, even though the culture's standard has. And so as we're looking at this, that's the kind of world that uh, excuse me, Esther is living in. She's living in a culture that is as antagonistic towards her faith as our culture is towards our faith. And yet what we're going to find out is this woman, primarily through the guidance of her older cousin Mordecai, she retains her integrity and she shifts the destiny of her people because she refused to bow down to what the culture was demanding of her. So let's go ahead and let's move a little bit further away from this king and all of his power and prosperity and pomp. And let's look at the queen because in chapter one only does Queen Vashti or Vashti appear. So let's take a look at her. First of all, note her benefit. And this is where you're going to start seeing the antagonism of their culture towards women. Look at what the scripture says in verse number nine. So Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace, look at the wording, that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, here's the thing that you're going to learn about the culture that Esther was growing up in, the culture that we're talking about right now going on in the book of Esther, is that women were nothing more than the property of their fathers when they were young or their husbands once they got married. They had absolutely no rights, zero. I read an article today by an incredibly gifted woman who I'd never heard of before. I just happened to do a simple search. I just searched, what has Christianity done for women? That's all I did. I Googled that. This link pops up. I read it. It was on gotquestions.org, I think. It was an amazing article. As It was probably about three pages. As this woman just took us through the history of what it's like for women, what it was like prior to the claims of Jesus Christ and the equalizing force of the gospel between male and female. And then she did something that was quite reasonable. She said, if you really want to know what the impact of the gospel is on the rights and the freedoms of women, just go to those places in the earth now that do not have the gospel. And she was bold, and she said, go and find where the Koran is the dominant article of the expression of faith, and you will find out what Jesus Christ has done for women. Now, unfortunately, for the women that were living in Persia at this time, there was no gospel of Jesus Christ yet, and so the culture was intentionally structured for the men to dominate the women. And most of the time, it wasn't an issue because the women just simply bowed to that social norm. And so there wasn't a whole lot of friction because that was just the culture. So let's look at it a little bit. When it says that Vashti, she was benefited. I mean, good night. She's married to the most powerful man in the world. So she is rolling as far as the external parts of life are concerned. She's got all the money she wants. She's got all the clothes she wants. She's got all the jewels she wants. Uh, she's got a chauffeur in her chariot that takes her wherever store she wants to go to in the marketplace. I mean, she has got it absolutely made, lives in the finest place in all of the known world at that time. But notice even the wording that the Holy Spirit inspired. It does not call it Queen Vashti's palace. It says the palace that belonged to the king. It's almost putting like, a yes, yeah, she's married to the king, but she's still little more than a tenant in his world. And it's that kind of subtle nuance that you're going to find threaded throughout so much of the story of the culture in Esther's time. But beyond her just being benefited, I think it's noteworthy, by the way, you're going to find out in this chapter, she was benefited, but she was not beloved. She was very little, um, she was nothing more 
than an object to gratify the desires of her husband, the king. Now, look at verse 10. We're going to note her beauty. So on the seventh day, that's the last day of the six-month-long party that culminated in a seven-day period of free wine for anybody. So look, let's just be realistic. There are a lot of drunk people, a bunch of drunk people. And so on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a pretty nice way of saying it, he commanded, and I'm not even going to go over all their names again, but he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now again, you may not think that there's anything odd about that. First of all, let's, let's go ahead and say this. The Bible doesn't say it's a bad thing for her to be uh, attractive. She was beautiful. I mean, he's the king, he can, and we're going to find out he can pick anybody in the kingdom that he wanted. He chose what he found the most attractive, and ultimately she became the queen. And she was the quintessential trophy wife. And so as King Xerxes and all of his buddies have been getting loaded for seven days, on the last day of the feast, when the Bible says, I'm not making it up, the Bible says he's drunk, he sends to the eunuchs, the chamberlains, the ones who were no threat to the woman because they were physically eunuchs, and so they were given the charge over the king's harem. Now, I'm going to be careful. we got young ears in here, but the, the king could go do whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted at any time that he wanted. And so these men would have the charge over the royal harem, but there was only one queen. And so King Xerxes, with his intoxicated friends, says, go and get her and put the crown on her and tell her I want her to come appear before me and my friends right now. Now, some of your Jewish historians who wrote early on about this passage of Scripture give this little nuance that I think is probably accurate. The reason why we believe that she protested and refused to come, because it's no big deal for the king to call his wife to come into the room, that would have happened all the time. The indication is, is that he wanted her to appear before all of these men wearing only her crown. So we've got this intensely powerful, drunken group of men, and we've got a king who has zero honor in his heart for any woman, including the queen, and he commands her to stand in his presence, and the Bible is very clear, because he wanted all the men to ogle her. He wanted all of the drunken men to look at his wife what kind of spirit is that what kind of spirit has to be moving in the heart of a man to where in his most intoxicated state with all of the women in the kingdom none of them would have been right but he picks the woman who should have the most honor in the land and he treats her with the most dishonor her beauty ended up becoming something that was objectified Guys, I, I want to say this, and it's just a good time for us to remember this. I'm, I'm not mad at anybody. I don't know what's going on in any man's life in this room, but I just know how it is to be a man in America. And I'm going to make some statements here. Women are not here for us to satisfy our base desires. Women are not put on planet Earth so we may stare them up and down, look at them at every angle, try to see as much of them as we can, and entertain fantasy thoughts in our minds. That is not the design of God. It never has been. But it is the trajectory of your culture. The, our culture has an unspoken, it's amazing to me, by the way, how Hollywood protests all of this stuff, and maybe they should protest it, but it would help if they were a little more consistent when they're putting movies out that constantly objectify women and then they cry foul when women are treated as objects. And so there's mixed signals going on, but that's in Hollywood, that's in the culture. I'm talking to the church. That as Xerxes had this underlying thought that that woman is here for my pleasure, that is an antichrist spirit. That a woman is the image bearer of God Almighty. He created them male and female. He created them in his image. 
And so she's actually carrying the image of God. And I believe that even the beauty, the natural beauty, because quite frankly, you know, men are kind of gross. I mean, that's just true. But and I'm not even being sensual here. I'm just telling you. Well, Amy told me this the other day that somebody was joking around in a woman's discussion. And uh, I, I think it was uh, Stacy Eldridge. And she said, hey, you'll notice there are no museums filled with, with portraits and paintings of naked men. You know why? Because we're gross. So that's just the way it works. But the reality is, is God created the female form to reveal something about his character. And there's a beauty to God and how wrong it is for us to take the image of God in the expression of the female gender and to objectify it for base lust. Now, just saying it's wrong doesn't help us to, to divest ourselves of that potential. But when we come to recognize that women are an expression of the divine heart of God, and we want to honor everything that comes out of the heart of God. Therefore, we do not sexually or in any other way objectify a woman and see her value only in the extent that it, it values me. And that's what Xerxes was doing here. But Vashti did not play. So look in verse number 12, because we've seen her benefit, we've seen her beauty. Now look at her backbone. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, the Bible says, and his anger burned within him. Verse 13, which we didn't read, and we'll go through the rest of these verses in the notes. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, the seven uh, princes of Persian media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, he says to them, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Do you see what happened immediately? He was humiliated in front of his friends because at the very least, his wife would not be paraded in her royal clothing before his drunken friends. It is highly likely that she refused to come because he was asking her to come wearing only her crown and Vashti just said no you've, you've got to appreciate the fact that in that culture she knew exactly what she was risking when she refuses the king's command but she honored herself she thought enough of herself and not in an un, inappropriate way thought enough of herself to say I will not be objectified by my husband and a group of drunken men I will not obey the king by the way she could be killed for that in that culture, she could be killed. Now, she wasn't killed. There's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that she was ever hurt, harmed. But we're going to find out in a moment. She is banished because immediately the king sees this, not in any kind of light of love, not in any kind of light of relationship. But now all he's sensing is the shame, the humiliation, and embarrassment that she just one-upped him in front of his buddies. And she, she moved with backbone. I'll talk to the daughters of God for a moment, especially those of you that are single. Listen, you hear me on this. I'm just going to put on my, my daddy's hat for a minute because I'm raising, I've got an 18-year-old daughter. And I just want to say, any man, no matter how sincere he is, no matter how much of a sweet talker he is, no matter how good he looks or how good he makes you feel, if he is seductive in his nature, I promise you something, he sees you in that moment as something he wants to conquer. He wants you for him, not you. I promise you. Now, he may have all the right words. He may send you flowers. He may take you to dinner. But I'm going to tell you something. Any man who begins to pressure you or woo you or seduce you in order to have you is an enemy to your soul. And if you're wise in the spirit, that will be the last time you ever talk to him. Yeah, you better help me, ladies. And listen, we've, we've lived long enough. We know how this stuff works. But I, I'm praying that women that are walking in the Spirit, that part of the response of walking in the Spirit is you will honor yourself as a daughter of God, that you will see your value as a daughter of God, and that you will not succumb to any pressure for a guy to have you in a way that is only lawful if he marries you first. And then y'all can have each other as much as you want because God says it's beautiful. It's a gift. But until that moment comes, 
If he's pressuring you or going after you, or if you're starting to lean in that direction, understand this. It's not just you and him anymore. The devil has gotten in the mix. Am I sounding old-fashioned enough for you? Good, because it's only as old-fashioned as the Bible is true. And so what we've got to do is we've got to, the church has lost her voice on this. We, We have literally gone mute because it's not popular. It's, it's not fashionable. It's not in step with the times. And again, we've lost our blush. We're no longer alarmed at anything. Pornography has so saturated our culture. I'm not even talking about hardcore porn. Some of the stuff that's on TV now, man, would have been like mind-blowing 25, 30 years ago. But we've lowered our guard, and because it's so normalized in the culture, now our daughters and our sons and our sisters and our brothers have just kind of migrated downward listen daughter of God if he can't marry you he can't touch you and and that trying it out before you seal the deal with marriage kind of thing uh uh-uh no listen if he loves your soul he'll want to begin even in the dating process whatever you want to call it dating courting I don't know whatever you want to call it, even in the dating process, he's concerned about you standing before the Lord and giving account for your life, so he wants to better you for that moment, not tarnish you. I wish we had the students in here for this one, man. So Queen Vashti did something good. She said, no. She said, I'm not going to be objectified, and she refused. And by the way, it's going to cost her. It's going to cost her basically everything. But I love the fact that her honor and her value of her own body and self was so strong that she would be be willing to risk the palace, the clothes, the party, the prestige, the position, everything that came on. She said, and this is not a a God-fearing woman. This is not a, a follower of Yahweh. This is just a pagan woman who said, I am not going to play that game with the men of this culture. So let's look at the culture. Let's just do that. Go down into verse number 16, and let's talk about the culture of Persia, because I'm going to unpack it in the time that I have remaining, and let me just give you some things. And I'm I'm just going to leave it to you. I'll probably help you make your decision, but just ask, is, is this like our culture or not? First of all, male dominance in Persia's culture was unquestioned. It was unquestioned. Then Mamukin, who's just kind of like, he is the chief spokesman into the life of King Xerxes. Mamukin said, in, in the presence of the king and officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. So let me, let me, let me just kind of unpack this for a little bit. So Mamukin is seeing what the king just did and he's taking this incident of Vashti's backbone and he's now expanding it and projecting it throughout the entire kingdom and immediately it becomes a domestic incident. It's a nationwide incident, an empire-wide incident. What is he saying here? He's saying, king, if I may speak so boldly, not only has she wronged you, but she has wronged all of us men. Why would he say something? Well, he's going to actually get unashamedly detailed about what he's thinking. But I want you to watch this. All these powerful men. These are the studs in Persia. You got the king. You got his cabinet. You got all these powerhouse guys. And all of a sudden, they've gone from a drunken binge party, and now they're having a cabinet meeting because the women are getting out of hand. It's kind of pathetic. Because all of the pomp and all of the pageantry and all of the power and, all, and then in a moment they're like, what are the women going to do? And, and they start fearing what might happen. It's not even realistic, but that is, that is ultimately what's being projected here is this deep insecurity that the cultural norms are going to be overturned. So go down into verse 17. Not only was male dominance unquestioned, because the men ruled. But female subservience was enforced in the kingdom. Verse 17 says, the queen, this is still Mamukin talking, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands 
with contempt since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. Now let me give the guys a little credit here. They know how quickly women can pass information along. And so it's already known kind of right there in the room and it's probably known in the queen's little private party for the sisters over there. And so the women are all over here and the queen has refused, so there's probably a little rumble going on over there. And the men are sitting in the room, and Mamuka's like, I wonder what my wife's doing right now. What's, he's looking, and all his friends, and they're all getting nervous. And then they start, listen, I mean, just listen to the words. The queen's behavior is going to be, known, be made known to all the women, and it's going to cause them to look at their husbands with contempt. It's amazing to me that in that culture, the men really didn't care if they had the women's hearts. They just wanted to enforce the women's obedience. It was, an ab- it was a relationship and a system that was completely devoid of love. And even in the marriage context, completely devoid of love. Because the women were only as important as to the degree that they serve the desires of the men. And the men are all of a sudden getting a little edgy that the most powerful woman in the land has exemplified to the most powerful person, the king, that women don't have to obey their husbands. And so all of a the sudden, they're, they're doing like the guys were doing in the, in the mid-70s when Gloria Steinem was rallying the females in America and all the men were just, oh, they were losing their minds. Some of you aren't old enough to remember that. But I'll be honest with you, my mom was a disciple of Gloria Steinem. So I remember how that stuff went down, man, and, and, and it, was, it was just venomous. And so the men are like, oh, no, what are we going to do? Because why? They were, they, were, they were concerned about losing control. They were recognized. It's just, it's so pathetic. Because here's, here's my belief. You don't have to agree with me on this, but here's my belief, especially in the context of Christianity. And before, before people start misquoting me or, or misunderstanding me, I do believe that there is the leadership role in the home and in the marriage of the man. I am not saying that there is no headship of the male. Uh, listen, as much, as much as this might be unpopular with, with the men, the Bible's still very, very clear that the man is to love and to lead his wife and the woman is to honor and submit to her husband. But the problem is, is that word submit. 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 Go ahead and try that at your house, fellas, and get back to me and tell me how that works for you. (laughs) Tell me how that goes. Here's what I've learned. In the context of Christian marriages and relationships, any man that will do the first part, and as long as the wife is, and I'm not being funny here, emotionally and mentally healthy, any man that will love her and seek to love her like Jesus loves the church is not going to have a woman that doesn't want to submit and follow because she's convinced that his desire for her is for her good, even at his expense. So please hear me on that because I don't want to be misrepresented and I don't want to get blamed for any woman going home saying, Pastor Jeff said, I don't have to follow you, I don't have to listen to you, I don't have to submit to you. And your husband's calling me up. That's not what I'm talking about. But... <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I've been doing this a minute. That's happened before. I, I think we're so out of balance the other way, though. And so if I seem like I'm being harder on the guys or I'm, I'm imbalanced, I, I believe it's because is, is from a wide scale, I just I see things prophetically. I see things just um, big picture. I, th- I don't even think I have to go out of my way to prove this. The scales have been imbalanced to where women have been suppressed by men. Anywhere in the world that you go, as much as there is so much wrong embedded in racism, there is wrong embedded in um, uh, you know, crime against weaker people groups, but I'm going to tell you, anywhere you go in the world, the most oppressed people are the females in every culture. Every culture, regardless of race, the most consistently oppressed uh, demographic is that of the females. And so what we need to do as gospel people, we need to recognize that there is a call on us to note what is wrong. If it's in our heart, then we acknowledge what it's wrong. If we need to repent, then we need to repent. But at the same time, we need to be, we need to be vocal advocates of a kingdom equality, a gospel equality, 
And it's not right just to say, Psh, you're making a big deal out of it. But friends, let me tell you, the only people who say you're making a big deal out of it are either, are, are typically men. They're just guys that have never experienced it. Queen Vashti, if she was sitting here tonight, would say, preach on, brother, preach on. So Mamukin and the guys are really, really worried that the cultural norm, look, look at verse 18, let's call them societal norms. They're going to be protected. These men aren't about to give up control on this. So watch this. Verse 18, this very day, the noble women of Persian media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So they take Vashti's refusal to be paraded before a group of drunken men and they have now turned it into an empire-wide dilemma. And so, I don't know, man. I try my best not to give my opinion when I'm preaching. But Mamukin sounds like he's been waiting on an opportunity to get his wife a little bit more heavily under his thumb. So now the, the king's riled up and Mamukin's like, Man, we just need to put these women in their place. We need to check them. Who do they think? They're, and they're not even doing anything. This is all up here. This is all in their paranoid little insecure minds going on. And none of it's happened yet. And yet these men, all in a room, in a 20-minute cabinet meeting where they're all drunk, are about to enact a policy to cover the whole kingdom that will dictate how women are to behave. I, I'm going to be bold with this. I, I believe the laws on the books don't allow for this in our culture. But the societal norms still do. It's still there. It may not be encoded in law anymore. I mean, you know, women get to vote. Woohoo! Does that solve everything? It's like the people that think the Emancipation Proclamation solved all the racial issues in America. Just because the laws are changed doesn't mean the reality has changed. And so when we're looking at this in our culture, I hope that we can agree with a gospel and a kingdom awareness and a balance that there is an intentional aspect of spiritual warfare that insists that the daughters of God be suppressed and it may not be to the degree that we're seeing it here but listen if Jesus has paid for and purchased with his blood and equality through the cross then any amount of suppression is a crime against him any amount of suppression of women and so when I'm looking at this I'm not okay living with an acceptance of imbalance I don't know that I can change the culture, but man, I can change my heart and I can help some brothers in the room maybe change their hearts. And there's even some women that are going to hear this. They're just saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know about this. I think, I think we're okay. And listen, in the name of Jesus, step into everything that he has for you. And don't let societal expectations and norm leave you with the feeling, well, it's good enough. Why mess with it? No, it's not good enough if it's not gospel enough. If it's not what he's provided for. And so when we see this kind of masculinized insecurity that, I mean, ultimately it boils down to the men are bigger and stronger. And so the expectation in all primitive cultures is, yeah, what do the women think they're going to do? If it boils down to it, if it boils down to a physical suppression of them, the men are going to win. And you're going to find that in every culture. So let's see what does happen. I've just got a few more minutes left. Y'all still with me? So I'm going to give you a word that we don't use all the time, but it's a fairly common word, and the word is misogyny. Raise your hand if you, never, if you don't know. Don't be embarrassed because it's not a word that I would have been able to define. How, how many would say, I don't, I've heard the word, but I don't know what misogyny is. Okay, that's cool. It's about half in the room. So misogyny, this may even be up on the notes. Did I put it in notes? Probably not. It, it is a hatred, dislike, or mistrust of women and in its most benign level, it is a prejudice against women. It is a hatred, a dislike, or a mistrust of women, 
or a prejudice against women. And so I want to talk to you about the misogyny in Persia, and we're going to wrap it up for tonight. So first of all, let's just see it, because it came from the top down. The king objectified the queen. We've already seen him sexually objectify her. But watch this. Mamukin's still speaking, and he says this. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persian and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. In other words, enact this law and make sure that it never gets unenacted. It never gets repealed. What is it? That Vashti is never again to come before the king, and the king is to give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now, right there. Now, guys, get this. All of us get this. This, this is a business meeting that wasn't on the books. It just happened in a room full of drunk powerhouse men, and within probably 20 minutes, they have sealed the fate of this woman. She's done. They're about to enact a law. The king towards his wife, makes her an object, not a person. He treats her as an offense, not as somebody that he's committed to. And literally, Mamukin, he's a punk, man. I don't know who he is, but he is a punk. His voice gets the drunken king's heart, and the king says, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And so in a moment, Vashti's fate is sealed. She is, from that, point, from that point forward, never in the presence of her husband, the king, again. They just decided how her life was going to go because she had the audacity not to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk, ogling men. This is, again, a good point. I've already hit it, so I'm not going to belabor it. The spirit that says that a woman is there for no greater purpose than to please the man according to his desires is an antichrist spirit. And our culture imbibes that into boys and men. If you're raising sons, I'm going to tell you, the culture wants your boy to objectify women. Average age of the first exposure to pornography, last I heard, which was about a year ago, a study came out, is younger than 11 years old, between 10 and 11 years old, where boys are exposed to hardcore pornography. My son was shown hardcore pornography in fourth grade, fourth grade, where their minds can't even, a kid brought it to school on a device, here, look at this, little bitty mind, doesn't even know what to do. That's what the culture is doing. And so when it's not, if it's not resisted with the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ, that seed that gets planted in a young boy's heart only evolves and grows to where by the time he's in adolescence and, and he has his own sexual drives, then, then he is saying, they are for me. I like what I see. That woman's there for me. And then when you add into it all of the media, all of the internet, all of the misogynistic music, it's not just rap, by the way. Rap has always gotten like the worst. And rap, the, the rap culture, especially going back in the 90s, was heavily misogynistic. But man, I grew up on rock and roll and it was no different. So it's not about a culture, a subculture. It is the culture that simply repeats over and over and over again in a thousand different ways. Women are for men, women are for men, women are for men, women are for men. Guys, we have to come at that and we have to start saying, no, women are for Jesus. Women are for Jesus. Women are for Jesus. And so we see Mamukin given this and then look what the men do. So here, here comes the official thing I'm about done. So when the decree is made by the king and it's proclaimed throughout all his kingdom for it is vast. Here's, here's the decree. This is a law. They actually pass this law. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. And so what does he do? Verse 22, the king sends letters to all of the royal provinces, 127 provinces, to every province in its own script, in its own writing and language, to every people in their own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according. That's so pitiful, man. It's, it is pathetic. I just see a bunch of intimidated, insecure men holding a piece of paper up in front of them. You see what the king says? You got to call me master. I'm the master of this house. But I've got the king set it right here. I am, he, he's not winning his wife's heart. He's not loving his wife. He's not leading his wife. 
She doesn't honor him. Just because a woman obeys doesn't mean she honors. And, and, and some men don't care. Some men would rather have the obedience than the honor. What good is the obedience if there's not honor? Because if there's honor, she won't have a problem obeying because you're for her. So guys, we've got this thing so jacked up. But did you forget? This is actually a series about Esther. Did you notice something? When Vashti is displaced, the king has no queen. All throughout the stuff that Esther, a young woman in the kingdom, by the way, it would be four years from this chapter one before she is, I'm going to give it to you, she becomes the queen. Esther becomes the queen if you don't know the story. It's four years. For four years, the invisible, silent, sovereign God of heaven is working things because he knows exactly what he's doing and nobody else does. Why is that important? And I'm going to close right here. Because God is for his children. And sometimes you don't see what he's doing for you. You don't know. I'm going to encourage you. You're not going to be able to leave here mad at me tonight. You have no clue how this awesomely wonderful, wise, benevolent, loving, faithful, compassionate God, when you can't find him, you don't hear him, he's not fixing what you need him to fix, you're stuck in your circumstances, you don't know what's going on, there ain't an open door of opportunity anywhere around you that you can see. What you're not aware of is the same God who is silent and still there in chapter number one is actually orchestrating on multiple levers, levels exactly what he is going to bring to you and ultimately bring through you. So we are called to live by faith, and sometimes the hardest faith is when we can't see a thing that he's doing and we don't hear a thing that he's saying. That is the greatest test of faith for the believer. But the beauty of it is this. If we will rest on our confidence that his character is good, the old hymn writer said, um, when you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. And so when we can't see what the sovereign God of heaven is doing, don't you listen to the devil. Don't you listen to your flesh. Esther had no clue that her whole life destiny was being fashioned over a four-year period. And when the moment comes in chapter number two, you're going to see God open this door that had been previously closed. And that's where the story starts getting good. Will you stand to your feet with me? Just a very quick prayer. Father, help me and my brothers to honor you by honoring your daughters, all of them. Lord, even the ones that aren't saved, Lord, I, not even in a theological sense being your daughters, Lord, but help us to honor women that are made in the image of God. Help me to honor my wife and my daughter, the women of this church, my sisters, the women in my community. God, I pray you would ratchet up in every man's heart in this room a commitment not to let his eyes soil the value of any woman. God, I believe you're a deliverer, so I believe you can deliver every man in this room from any potential for lust ever again in his life. Holy Spirit, make that real right now in our hearts. And God, may each of your daughters in this room so value herself that she walks not in pride and arrogance with her head up, but she walks in a confidence that she is beloved by a God who sometimes is still and silent. But Lord, may she know that you're working all things right now together for her good. In Jesus' name, amen.